HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Sushi Master, the new book by Nick Sakagami. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about Japan. And you know, Japan has a a long history, for sure. But the defining elements of Japanese cuisine really didn't come about until the 17th century, a period known as the maturing of traditional cuisine. This is the period when Japan was isolated from the rest of the world, and would be for the next 250 years. In fact, no foreigners were allowed to enter Japan, and Japanese citizens were not allowed to leave the country, and those who already left could not return. It's during this time of isolation that certain culinary traditions unique to Japan developed. The tea ceremony, for one, evolved, and that spawned the kaiseki tasting meal, and also the aesthetics of cuisine that became more defined and more refined. To this end, there's a popular saying in Japan that Japanese people eat with their eyes. And in fact, for the Japanese, the art of arranging food is as important as the taste itself, almost to the point of obsession. Well, a foreigner might say, almost to the point of obsession. My guest is laughing, okay. It is... This expert merging of food and vessel and how it is arranged that's known as moritsuke that we're going to talk about today, amongst many other things, I'm sure. 
and my guest knows firsthand about the art of arranging food in Japan. She is Elizabeth Ando, an expert in Japanese food culture. Elizabeth is the American authority on Japanese cuisine, and she's made her home in Japan since 1967. As a graduate of the Yanagira, Yanagihara, Yanagihara School of Classical Japanese Cooking, she now teaches, um, she teaches culinary arts and directs a program called A Taste of Culture. Well, welcome to A Taste of the Past, A thank Taste you. of the Culture. Thank you, <laughs> um, thank you. She is the author of at least six books on yeah. Japanese cuisine, including Kancha and Washaku, which won the IACP Jane Grigson Award for Distinguished Scholarship in Food Writing. It's a beautiful book. Uh, and was nominated for a James Beard Award. She was the Japanese correspondent to Gourmet Magazine and is a contributor to Sabur and lectures in an internationally. And we could go on and on about your Japanese um, contributions, too. But enough said for the American, because I want to hear from you. Welcome, you. Elizabeth. Thank you. Well, all right. So I started out by describing that era when I said that um, perhaps yeah. this is where the aesthetics of Japanese cuisine became more refined. You were saying, well, it, you really feel it goes back a little further than that. Well, I, the tea ceremony certainly became codified mm -hmm. with a set of rules and procedures um, in the Edo period. But much earlier than that, there was this sensibility. I don't know that it was codified. I don't know that it was as beautifully... Um, described as large vocabulary that everybody would agree upon, mm. but there certainly was a sensibility and it was evident in um, ordinary people's lives as well. Um, it's true that uh, most Japanese food is, is known outside Japan uh, as a more formal, studied, um, rule-ridden uh, cuisine. Um, I prefer to think of them as procedures, habits, um, but combined with this sensibility. And the sensibility is that you use all your senses. And uh, with food, obviously taste and smell are a large part of it, but so is sight. And the, uh, the visual appeal of the food is critically important. I don't know that it's more important, but it certainly is... Uh, a very important element. It's one that you can't ignore. All right. Well, certainly, when I mean, for me, I'm speak, yeah. speak for myself only, but I'm sure that most most people, most people outside of Japan, when they see one of these, a plate, any plate of Japanese right. food presented to them, I mean, you have to just stop and gasp. So, or take it as an Instagram moment. You know, take a photograph <laughs> of it because it is just it's it's so pleasing to the eye. It is so beautiful to see or or I mean there's something very it's it's a story it's a dramatic stage <sighs> and it's yeah. an opportunity to um, present there are also performances meaning live where people are actually making it and indeed um, many styles of dining uh, encourage that something known as couple where you have that counter and there's maybe five, six, seven people sitting at the counter, and the itamai or the chef is on the other side and actually finishing off the food as it's being made for you. So there's a kind of theater and performance element, but there's also, once you see it finished and it's on your plate in front of you, 
it's um, it is a work of art. Yeah, it is. You know, so much so that a lot of modern chefs today, well, well for the past I'd say ten or fifteen years, perhaps. Yeah have adopted a lot of the if not the rules and and the placement they just the the final look this I think they've been inspired yes. and I think that they have um, acquired a lot of the um, specific elements and um, there is a, a in fact in Japan a, f a fairly new style of um, kaiseki it's interesting the word kaiseki can be written in two different ways in Japanese and with a different nuanced meaning. There are the characters that relate it specifically to the tea ceremony, and they are actually the characters for warm belly stones. Because in the, <laughs> in the old days, um, it's now a copious amount of food, and it would sort of ease the sound of a growling stomach, um, and you were going to have your little bits and pieces. And then there are calligraphy that indicate the meeting of people and usually that's translated or should be translated as a banquet. It's a, a, a glorious uh, meal that is being shared by a lot of people but not necessarily um, specific to uh, the tea ceremony itself. Mm -hmm. And it's that second kaiseki, um, the banquet style kaiseki, um, that has really allowed a lot of different interpretations. Um, and the newer ones are referred to as so seki or um, creative endeavors. And people will take some of the Japanese chefs and, and others who come to Japan and get inspired by it, will take some of the uh, basic elements as a starting point and then take it from there. Um, that being said, as with any cuisine, I think, there are certain sort of unstated rules, habits that are so deeply ingrained in the people who have them <laughs> that they don't even realize that if you break out of that, people are either offended or puzzled. Hmm. Um, and something lands up on your plate and you say, huh? Um, of course, if you don't know those rules, you're, well, you could just enjoy. You can enjoy what, sort what of, arrives. Sort of, but not necessarily. There, but there's I, but I want to talk about some of those yeah. rules because I think it's it's really very interesting. Um, you gave a presentation to the Culinary Historians yes. of New York the other night, and it was just you know, wonderfully enlightening and filled with, with slides. And I'm sorry, we can't have all those beautiful right. pictures to, well, to show people. You have to use your, your imagination. Right. We'll describe as best we can. Describe. Uh, but the rules, if you will, but the, the basic tenets of, of, of presentation, of the, yeah, the presentation yeah. and, and then the, the plate, the dish, the vessel itself. Right. right. Well, so moritsuke is a word um, specifically in Japanese that describes sort of what happens after the food is ready to eat and before you eat it <laughs> and how it's going to be placed, arranged, displayed in uh, an utsua is the word in Japanese. It's a vessel and it could be anything from a plate, a platter, uh, a dish, a bowl, any kind of surface, a box, uh, a basket, any kind of a, a surface or container in which food could be placed. And um, in the choice of what food goes in what container, <laughs> uh, 
and therefore how you're going to cut and shape that food. So mm -hmm. you could have your same um, rice. It could be in a separate bowl uh, as part of a larger tray or, or place setting. Or it could be, often rice is eaten at room temperature, shaped or molded to look like um, a rice bale, rice that has been recently harvested in the field and ready to be hmm. um, picked up. And uh, carrots, uh, in, in the fall they could be cut to look like maple leaves, in the spring they could look like cherry blossoms. So there's a lot of different um, possibilities that need to be considered between the time you're making the food and the time you're going to be displaying it. So, for instance, if one were serving, well, let's say a, yeah. a, a, a nice dinner, doesn't have to be a special dinner, right. but a, a very nice dinner to um, family or friends, right. and um, f uh, well, you showed a, a beautiful plate of um, fish, at one of them, and okay. um, so this was maybe a, a dinner for four people right. or more, and there were about I don't know ten different, different I think we counted it was about a, ten different types of fish. Right, it was an otsukuri course. It's interesting on most uh, menus here in America, you see the word sashimi, and it, sashimi means fresh slice, and indeed mm -hmm. they are fresh slices of fish. You could also have sashimi of tomato if you wanted to, or avocado, but. Um, most Japanese refer to it as otsukuri. And again, the, the meaning of the word on the calligraphy is creative endeavor. So mm -hmm. it's a creative transformation. It's no longer the fish swimming in the water. Um, it's been creatively um, transformed and sliced and, and arranged on the plate um, differently. And uh, often that's done in almost a fanned out effect. It, it's sort of like a low domino that has been hit right. and they've all right. sort of gone out together. Um, and that's usually referred to as something as hiramori, a flat arrangement. And the Japanese typically landscape. I mean, they think of the plate or the bowl as a, uh, a canvas, if you will, for drawing mm -hmm. a landscape. And typically there is something of height, and the word that the, or the image that the Japanese have is of a cedar tree because the name of that tall, narrow, sort of slender uh almost teepee-like shape in the back often of a, of a bowl is referred to as sugimori or the cedar arrangement. Um, and consciously, people will arrange it as a landscape. Mm -hmm. um, so those fish were, I think there were 10 or 12 different Quite varieties. A few, yeah. yeah. Each sliced into four pieces, so one for each diner. Right, Presumably there were four, right? You're right. And... Uh, variety of color, and the color was very important as well. Yes, it right? was, and in particular, um, certain color combinations, red and white are the colors of felicity, known as kohaku, and there was red lean tuna, and there was white squid, um, and they were contrasted against each other as, as uh, pieces. Um, it's interesting, that same arrangement, the uh, Otsukuri, the sashimi moriawase, could have been arranged differently. And that would be so that each diner would have a cluster that had all of the elements That's that right. they were intended right. to eat. I was thinking of that one of each one of each. Well, slice then it then... would be called something different, known as <laughs> yosemori, because yoseru is to gather together. Ah. And indeed, that's um, an option or an opportunity. It's a 
creative opportunity for the chef to make that decision. And um, I, I happen to know that that particular slide was from a, a restaurant meal that I had had, had and it was all about using that platter because you could tell that they really wanted to use the platter that it was on. Uh-huh. And if they were going to show that platter off to best advantage, Hiramori was the way to go, not Yose. <laughs> and so very often the choices that a chef or a cook, a home cook, would make um, would be almost the plate comes first. I, I was going to ask that because <laughs> the, it seems like the vessels, the plates... Um, the serving items are so important. Mm, oh, it's truly an integral part of the of Feasting the on ceramics is what I call it. And, <laughs> and um, after I, I did a program a number of years ago in a uh, ceramics uh, studio program uh, where I had people bring in their work. And um, we went to a local supermarket and just bought about $50 worth of produce. And um, something flat. Each person had to bring something flat, something uh, curved or enough to hold a liquid if, if possible mm-hmm. um, and then a shape that was of their choosing, something perhaps that was odd, several people brought triangular shapes, other people brought long narrow shapes um, and uh, we made a salad and everybody had a chance to put their salad on their Place plate. the food in just such and, a right Well, way. however they wanted to um, and it was really about showing off their work mm-hmm. and not really about the salad um, and but both benefited from each other and that's a very Japanese sort of again sensibility well um, as you had described yeah. you the the philosophy of using making positive space of negative space yes in other words what's not occupied by food is part of the design and sometimes it's more stark and more obvious. There is a part of the tea ceremony where you've got a course known as hasun. And usually it's a square um, dish, and often it's wood. In the summer, I remember I showed a glass one right. um, in the slides. Um, sometimes they can be round, but, but usually they're square. And uh, a sun is a measurement. It's a little bit um, larger than an inch. So it, it, the name of the, that dish, it comes from the size of it. And yet there are only usually two, possibly three clusters that appear on that dish, usually lower left and upper right. And usually the lower left is something from the sea and something in upper right is something from the land. So again, your, your topography um, and your sort of surf and turf notion of eating uh, nutritional balance as well but it's very stark and um, it's very much about where the food isn't as much as where the food is and how the food is placed well, and it makes one notice notice the food but also notice the plate, the plate. that it's upon right yeah, yeah. and and take that appreciation of, of right. all items and, and, and it's so stark that it's a work of art and it's and it's beautiful Yes, and I think that it would be hard um, to remain engaged in Japanese culinary endeavor without venturing into the world of ceramic arts. Hmm. Um, And fairly quickly on, uh, you learn what part of Japan produces what sort of clay and what kind of kiln and what sort of work. And um, I would say within a very short period of time, people 
recognize um, very, very different styles. There's one um, bizenyaki which has no glaze on it, mm -hmm. but uh, the way the kiln and the fire reacts to the clay, and sometimes they put straw on the clay so that it burns and gets these angry red streaky marks on it. Um, and uh, they're exciting to look at, so you don't want to cover them totally right. with food, but also the juxtaposition of the food on that plate so that you can see just a few of these streaks and makes you curious about what's under it, so you're going to eat the food so you can see. Um, so the interplay of food and vessel is very much a part of the um, eating experience as well as the preparing it. So it there's also um, okay, so we have the dish, and right. it's not just a one-item dish. It can be a let's say a, an arrangement of right. maybe four, three, three or three or five different <laughs> items that you're having in right. that meal. There's something like a, a right. grated a grated a, vegetable with a with a protein. right. A basic meal is something called ichiju sansai. Uh, one broth, three dishes. Notice four is not four; it's one and three. Um, and then what's not stated is rice, gohan, because the word for a meal and the word for rice is the same, gohan. Uh -huh. So usually there's five things on your tray or in your place setting. And why aren't there four? Because <laughs> it's a word play on the word for death. And um, it's much, I liken it to the number 13 in, in America. Mm -hmm. You know there's a 13th floor between 12 and 14, but it doesn't say so. And when you get in the elevator, you, I guess you feel better because you're not pressing it. Um, and no hospital or doctor's office would have the number four in their phone number. Um, but also at table, four is avoided. But in general, I think it's also that um, Japanese is more asymmetrical, more syncopated, mm. and not symmetry. Uh, and so it lends itself better to that. Every once in a while, four things are two plus two. Or three plus one. or But, three, yeah, yeah. but right. more often than not, it's three things almost in a circle, and then one on top of it is the fourth. And mm. so it's a three and one mm -hmm. and with a little bit of height to it. Interesting. Um, we talked about all oh, the negative space and how that it's it's as beautiful. But so this is the food upon one plate or the a, a meal, a dish, or right. one part of a meal. But the placement, let's say mm. you're, you're giving a whole service at one time you're not dishing them out from a, a central platter right. you're serving one person let's say almost as though it were on a tray and it could be on right. a tray there's there are certain rules if you will or at least Absolutely. habit like we put the fork on the left as you said right and there's a where way does that your go, right? bread plate and right. butter plate go to the, to the left and the upper right right so rice goes lower left always always lower left it's the place of respect. It's known as the kamizar, the most exalted location. And interestingly, in a room or at a table, when you're seating somebody, that equivalent position is also where the most honored guest sits. Hmm. So yeah. the most honored guest on your tray is rice, and it's going to be in that position. End discussion. <laughs> um, soup goes to the right. And usually immediately to the right with other stuff behind it. But there are alternate positions. But the soup would be to the right of the rice, not in back of it and not to the left of it. And then whatever else you want to do, you do. Right? <laughs> sort of. And, and some of it is very practical. I mean, the art of arranging is um, 
a happy uh, accommodation rather than compromise, a ha happy accommodation of very practical things. If you've got food that is going to be particularly challenging to eat, if it's in the back, you're mm -hmm. going to bring it forward. Um, even with or especially because it's chopsticks primarily yeah. rather than knife and fork. Um, so it's, it's an interplay of practical and, and habits and I don't know, why is the fork to the left? And yes, okay. Do we, I, I'm I, sure there was... Was there a reason once? Probably. Well, no, it was more about the knife, not the fork. It was more about the knife. Because okay. the fork came much later. Okay. So it's more about the knife, in my uh, opinion, and, right. and just from what I can gather from sources of in history yeah. that we know. And the knife, people cut with your right hand with a knife, so you hold your the the item down with your left hand so Got that you it. can cut with your right hand. Right. Then, of course, you put the knife down, you switch the fork to your right hand, right. you skewer well, the mute. And the meat so it's interesting. It in I mean, the Japanese also presume that people are right-handed. Mm. Mm -hmm. And um, But just as with the placement of the fork and knife, chopsticks don't change if you're lefty or righty. The part that goes in your mouth always points left towards the rice. Always points to the rice. To always points to the rice. Interesting. Right. I like that. I, that, that yeah. I, yeah. Um, the uh, many of the sensibilities that you talked about, um, also the principles that are brought out in your book Washaku, mm. um, but these these concepts of the moritsuke, the the arranging the food on the plate, mm. um, are you talked about the balance, uh, the um, and and for variety and the juxtaposition, I would say. Seasonality. We didn't. That's, yeah, seasonality that's a is a very one. big. Is very big. Um, I think of of most place settings as coordinates, if you will, of time and space. <laughs> and so it's it's timing and it's placement, and it has to do with where you are and when you're there. And so you're going to bring something of where you are to the arrangement. So if we're in New York, it's going to be different than if you're in Hawaii. It's going to be different than if you're in Tokyo. And um, right now, it's finally spring-like. Um, if it's spring, it's going to be different than if it were the fall or the winter or mm -hmm. the summer. So all of that needs to be evident, and it's up to the creativity of the cook to find an appropriate way to demonstrate that. Not... Mm, again, obstructively, or so that it distracts you from the pleasure of eating. But when you look at it, you say, hmm, yeah, I'm in New York and it's spring. Um, and you would know this how, for example. What would you, what are some examples that you might say? Let's say, um, you say spring, so what might there be on the plate? Well, interesting, at the program, I was asked to supply a couple of nibbles to people, and I included asparagus. Mm -hmm. um, because I had seen it at the uh, farmer's market right. uh, and it's the day before. And it's, and it's spring. Right. It, it, it's a spring thing. Probably um, at an, another time of year, it would have been maybe a root vegetable, would mm -hmm. have been something, some, especially if it was in the winter or something of that sort. So sometimes it's the choice of the food, and the Japanese word for that is shun. If we had an umlau, it would be helpful because it's S-H-U-N, and otherwise it looks like it's something you want to avoid instead of something you want to embrace. But it's pronounced shun, and it means the seasonal peak of flavor. 
And then there's another word that describes that time frame, and it's called kisetsukan. And it's the kan part of it that's the feeling, the sensibility. So it's not a concrete thing, it's a sensibility. And it's the combination of using shun in that location, whatever happens to be in season at that time in that place, and also that seasonal sensibility. So some of that's very cultural. And um, for Easter, for example, in Western cultures, it's often associated with bunny rabbits, right? Yes. So you go to Asia and... (laughs) Why, we don't know, but... (laughs) I don't know, but you go to Asia and rabbits have an entirely different context. And that's the fall. Mm. The the, the, the autumn beautiful full moon. Because the Japanese and other Asians believe that there is a rabbit pounding omochi in the moon, not a man in the moon and not blue cheese. So if you used a rabbit motif for a Japanese or somebody brought up in that culture, they would think it was the fall, not the spring. Interesting. So what these motifs are is all about the feeling, and that's heavy cultural overload. Yeah. yeah, indeed it is. Um, I want to talk about actual preparation of some of the food and how that can play into this yes. scene, scene on a plate as well yes. when we come back after a short break. Today's program was brought to you by Sushi Master, the new book by Nick Sakagami. Sushi Master is an expert guide to sourcing, making, and enjoying sushi at home. As the only person outside of Japan to earn the designation Osakana Meister, Nick Sakagami introduces the fundamentals of sushi, starting with the fish. Photography from Tokyo's Tsukiji Fish Market offers an inside look at where most of our tuna comes from and a deep dive into the tools, techniques, and etiquette of sushi ensure you'll never look at a California roll the same way again. Sushi Master comes out on June 4th, 2019. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Elizabeth Ando. She is a Japanese food authority or cuisine cuisine and culture. I like to say cuisine and culture yes. anthropologist in a way. I think you're probably I think speaks that's more. Yeah. More accurate, yeah. yes. Um, but you do teach cooking as well. Mm-hmm. The practical side, yeah. yes, but yeah. also the, the cultural context. More the cultural context, right. Um, we were talking about the placement. It's moritsuke. Right. I always miss a syllable in Japanese words somehow. They're, they're pre- the ones they're actually, it's... they're pretty flat. Yeah. And, and some people try to find where the accent goes, and the answer is nowhere. nowhere. It's flat. Moritsuke. 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 Yeah. Um, we're, and that's the placement and the arrangement of the food on the plate. Right. Talking about seasonality, um, of course, you can also, you, you mentioned and you showed some beautiful pictures of uh, maybe, a, I think this was a bowl that had a lot of different items in it. Right. And one was very decorative. It was maybe a piece of carrot or a right. beetroot or something. So you could carve that into a shape 
Yes. Of, of um, a seasonal item? Right? Seasonal item or some sort of motif that would accentuate um, the occasion. Um, for example, happy occasions, no matter when they would occur during the year, you probably would want to use something red and something white. And red is a large range of colors, anything from pink, purple, crimson to orange like a carrot. So mm. you might do a combination of carrot and daikon, and that would be considered also kohaku, or this red and white. And um, some of the motifs for um, happy occasions would be musubu, or things that are tied together, especially at a wedding oh, sure. or at yeah. an anniversary where you had a reunion. You would have lots of different things it's that tied were up. tied oh, together. That. So you would definitely serve the rice in a bundle, right? And like a, probably, tie it together. Probably, <laughs> and probably strips of carrot and strips of daikon that were just wilted enough with salt so that they could become flexible and made into this knot that would tie together. Uh, anyone who has eaten Japanese food either mm. here or in Japan, you know, that they're, the knife skills are so important. It's, it's about <laughs> cutting and slicing and, and peeling. Um, so much so that the peel becomes part of, of the, the food, food and the decoration <laughs> itself, right? It, it does. So blades, and they come in different lengths and shapes, and a basic set in Japan is actually four. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. yeah well uh, knives do knives do cause death, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so you've got your long usually tapered sashimi bocho, and that is mm. indeed for making sashimi. Uh, for most of Japan it's going to be a tapered end of that long blade. And down in the Osaka Kansai area, it's often a flat cut off, almost like there are different ways of manicuring your nails, and there are people who have the sort of yes, the flat rounded tipped. Or, rounded or flat, flat right. right. So they, it looks almost like a flat tipped uh, at the end. Um, and that's long and uh, very specifically shaped for doing certain jobs. Um, there's another blade called a nakiri bocho, that is used for not referring to vegetables, that is perfect for cutting vegetables, including that big, broad peel that's known as katsuramuki, mm. where it looks like they're sort of unfurling a large, especially a daikon, they would be unfurling that. And the way in which the blade is a constructed, curl, big curl, curled, right, yes. right. The way in which the blade is constructed is suitable for that, but not, for example, for slicing fish, for, for sashimi. And then you have two daggers, if you will. You've got a regular dagger, a deba, and you've got a small dagger, a kodeba. So actually there's three varieties, but there's four knives to the oh. set. Um, and what you would do with a deba bocho is very different. You wouldn't attempt to do katsuramuki with a deba bocho, and you wouldn't attempt to um, do sashimi with it either. You could pry open clams or mussels. You could um, use the heavy deba to actually crack small bones uh, and break things up. So each knife has its own purpose, and um, for most non-professional kitchens there's a single blade that does a lot of things and the old-fashioned word for it in japan was bunka bocho or actually the culture blade uh, bunka oh, means bunka. culture um but um it, it's a a blade that is um uh 
broad, it has enough weight to it, it is tapered so that you can do various different uh, things at the same time, santoku bocho, and it, it's got three characteristics. It, it is tapered, it is wide, and it does have some heft to it. Um, it doesn't do as good a job on any of those things oh. as the separate blades do, but most households will have um, the santoku uh, blade. And in fact, there are a lot of now um, uh, knife companies outside Japan who are making santoku Yes, and, and they've become very popular right. in the United States for, with chefs. Right. All right. um, are there, in the um, these different designs, if you will, of, right. of the placement of the food in on the plate or in, in the different vessels, um, there are set prescriptions of them? You say there's the there was the sugo, the tree. Right. Okay. Well, so there's certain shapes or sizes that have definition. It doesn't mean that you have to use them or you don't have to use them, but um, tall, narrow, slender is likened to a cedar tree. Right. So it's called the sugi mori. And this sort of flat, flat. domino is the hira. Uh, anything where you're sort of coaxing it together, disparate elements, is yoseru is the verb for coming together. So they're not um, odd, difficult, special words. They're really descriptive. They're descriptive, okay. Of, of the kinds of shapes that are opportunities for display of your food. Something that um, I had mentioned to you the other mm. evening, and I, and I wondered if this... Well, it's not wonder. It's mm. it's a definite, and that is that having the food, and it's not a lot of food in any one dish. I mean, it not won't usually. see a big plate of you know, of a, a big pile of stew or something. It, it, it's, it's it's hard to create volume. You're right. Yeah. I mean, there's not a whole lot of volume to any of these displays. Right. But I think what it must do, without question, whether with and yeah. unconsciously, is creates more mindful eating. You're, you're aware of picking something out of that grouping or that design right. and putting it in your mouth and then tasting it. And we talk a lot today about um, being more mindful of how we eat, knowing where your food comes from, yes. what it is, how it tastes, how it's prepared, and in this case, how it's placed on the plate. What is that significance placed on the plate? Right. Um, I think mindfulness is, is part and parcel of... Japanese culinary endeavor, mm. whether it's from selecting ingredients or making use of a gift that nature or somebody gave you, um, thought, positive energy is part of that decision-making process. Again, it's usually thought of as, as an opportunity, and you have lots of opportunities, and you need to select a few. What Japanese chefs will often do, less so home cooks, what Japanese chefs will do is if they are presented with some glorious ingredient, mm -hmm. um, they will decide to present it three different ways really on the same plate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one way of making people more attentive, more mindful um, of it. There is playfulness not 
I wouldn't call it happenstance. I, I call it playful whimsy is part of the option range in Japanese food. It's not all serious stuff. No. But I have a sense of humor. It's food. I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> it's food, but and, and, and the sort of kitschy cute, uh, yeah. certainly in the obento arena, um, kitschy cute is a big part of and, it. And we see that at the, at the Japanese convenience stores here. They yes. sell the cute little snacks for children, and they're always in a, a character shape or something, right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, um, toothpicks in, in Japan meant to be sort of like skewers, here you probably put them in cubes of cheese, come in cute little googly eyes <laughs> that you can stick into a tomato or a yeah. piece of broccoli oh, to get kids to eat their yeah. veggies as, as well. So there's all sorts of options out there. And I think the person who's preparing the food is more mindful because they're making these considered decisions about, okay, I've... I really think this would best showcase it or, or that's the most convenient. I'm running out of time and I need to do it. So this is what I'm going to do today. Yeah. Um, and for the person who's receiving it, um, saying, gee, that looks great, but you know, I probably wouldn't have done it that way. Well, how would I have done it? And sort of engaging almost in a conversation between the person preparing the food and the person consuming it. Okay, so this leads me to my next question, and okay. that is, um, you touched on it briefly before, but that is, do does everyone in Japan <laughs> know how to do this? Know what it is? I mean, if you're you're at home and you're you're you know putting yeah. lunch on the table for the kids, I mean, everyone knows to do this. Um, it's and to not what that extent? they know to do it; it's that. Um, it is um, early acquired, and um, you know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Sometimes <laughs> it's hard to figure out because if kids are brought up with being presented kitschy, cute bento to eat, when they grow up, they're not going to slap something together either. And it was it's, it's sort of part of the the process. And um, I do remember my daughter has made her life here in America, but um, she was born and early raised in, in Japan. And I do remember uh, she saying that she was, she told me she was grossed out by what she saw on the plate. In a, she went to summer camp uh, when she was little in, in America. And that would never have happened in Japan. Everything was carefully considered. Placed. Placed yeah. and, and, and considered. Um, so I think that it, to some extent it sort of feeds on its, itself, but I think any, anybody who prepares, who enjoys cooking and who enjoys preparing food for themselves and for others will feel wonderfully comfortable knowing that they've got this opportunity presented to them and they can run, go and run with it however they want. And one of the um, considerations is the practical. I mean, how much time do I have? How mm -hmm. much of this food do I have? Mm -hmm. um, do I have a sharp knife? No, I may, I may be in a place where I don't have a sharp knife and I can't go start you know, whittling away at something. Um, so what can I do with that? Um, and also, who, if I'm going to be making that food for somebody else or sharing it with other people, being mindful of the recipient when you're making it. So maybe it's something... That almost shows respect in a way. I mean, you're, you know... that. It's, oh, it's also sort of practical. Maybe I just know that the people 
are making fur are sincere and they're curious, but they really don't know how to use chopsticks. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to set up the plate so that it's going to become a mess if they don't use the chopsticks right. It's going to be more knife-fork friendly or finger-friendly. Um, and that would be a decision that would be made by the person who's preparing the food, knowing something about the people who are going to be um, consuming it. Uh, so it's a sort of a give and take. It's a relationship between the people who consume and prepare. Often I, when I see the plates of these beautifully designed morsels of food, uh, morsels is, is the right word that yeah. comes to mind because it doesn't look like a lot of food. It, well, so I, I suspect that... Um, Back in the old days, where you didn't have refrigeration and you had limited swift transportation, pretty much you had what was within walking distance at that time right. of year. Well, um, I was thinking, too, this to, period of isolation. To nourish you, right. and uh, not a whole lot of it. Um, right. So you were going to make the best of what you had. And um, volume as well as variety. So if you had only two or three things you would make each and every one of them do seven different things. <laughs> and indeed, that style, that something-something zukushi, where you're using an ingredient in its entirety, it was before the Iron Chef, centuries <laughs> before the Iron Chef, um, the Japanese were taking a single ingredient and preparing it in seven different ways. And that was a challenge to them, right? Is it was... Maybe that's all you had. Mm. And so the, the creativity and the ability of the, of the preparer, the chef, the cook, is going to be judged by what that person could do. So the vestige of that today is when bamboo shoots are in season, it's a fairly short season, but it's glorious. I mean, forget anything you ever knew about bamboo shoots, mm -hmm. unless you've eaten them fresh before. Um, so you're going to have them six different ways at a meal. And if you're in Japan only for four or five days at the time that bamboo shoots are in season, no matter where you go, you're going to get bamboo shoots. <laughs> and a number of people have remarked, you know, don't the Japanese eat anything but bamboo shoots? And the answer is, yeah, but... You it's know, a special just, time. It's We're a special time, it. right. Um, so I don't know, how many different things can you think of to do with asparagus? See, with that, I was going to say, we, we do celebrate some of that, like with asparagus um, and green garlic. Green garlic is... Oh, well, is I don't know about yeah. green garlic and yet. After ramps, that. because yeah, those, ramps. Are, those are things that have such a short window of, right. uh, you know, they appear in the spring and only for a very brief time. So chefs become very, and home cooks become very inventive what they do, or then they ferment it or preserve it so they can have it, you know, later right. in the year. Um, but yes, I can, I can, so I can I often, imagine that. I, I, I liken it to people who, you go from too much to too little. Right. So you have somebody who has grows zucchini and that's too much. Yeah. Yeah. And you could always do with another zucchini recipe. Or be probably, hopefully it's not from um, poverty uh, or drought. You don't have anything because you didn't get to the market. You thought you had something sitting, sitting back in the refrigerator. You open it up and lo and behold, all you've got is X fill in the blank. And that's all you've got. And being able to make that into a meal is really useful and helpful. 
And so let's say you only have 20 minutes. You don't have two hours. Um, so what you're going to do in 20 minutes is going to be very different than if you had two hours. That's right. But I would also say you asked about you know whether the home cook does a lot of this. Um, prepping ahead, thinking ahead, planning things out ahead is probably the single greatest way to reduce stress of having to put a meal on the table Absolutely. in 20 minutes. Absolutely. Uh, and the Japanese are very into that and wow. have always been into that. Um, to some extent, the food itself, a, a large number of Japanese dishes are served at room temperature. So being very hot or being very cold is not an issue. You can make it ahead and you're going to be consuming it that way. You don't have to heat it up again. You don't right. have to chill it. Um, but I would say that's the norm, is to prep ahead and to perhaps make something um, enough for two or three servings. That is the Marie Kondo type of book that needs to be written for the American <laughs> Funny audience. Funny that she's Japanese, Exactly. Right? Um, that needs to be written for the American audience, for all those people who say, thank you. I can't cook. Oh, my God, how can you do all well, this? I know I can't I'm cook. I'm working on a plan. Yes, okay. That, that, well, I'm just planting the seed thank there. Thank you. <laughs> so publishers who want it, to be come done. talk to me. Absolutely, right. absolutely. Okay. Well, I was thinking when I um, initiated the question about the, yeah. you know, the little bit of food and where, you know, where does it come from? You know, I mean, um, because of this this period in history that the Edo mm. period, when the, it, isolation, they right. were isolationists. Well, they didn't have a lot of a lot of anything, a lot of things. So austerity. I'm not so many cuisines throughout Europe and post war and during because yeah. of wars. You know, arise because of poverty. What they the inventiveness. You know, yes. necessity is the mother of invention, uh, right? You know, so I, I often stop uh, foods like tofu mm -hmm. imagination and desperation right. i think probably in equal quantity um who ever saw soybean growing and imagined tofu exactly. had a fabulous <laughs> imagination and, and, i mean what what a stroke of genius you know yes yes because so many things had to happen to make it that final product it's not just a question of watching an animal eat it and they're okay two days later so maybe i can eat it too <laughs> But it, it's all that human creativity and energy that goes into the transformation of the ingredient to a finished dish. And um, it's not always heat that's applied. So there are a lot of foods to which heat is not um, being applied to them, but enormously transformed. Um, when I do a, a program, and I do it every uh, spring, usually in June, uh, on skemono and pickling, in Tokyo. It's a, usually a two-day workshop o over a weekend. And um, the reason why I do it in June is because that's when we can do the fresh ginger and we can mm, make the thin yeah. pink ginger pickles. Um, I, I call it agents of change. It sounds a bit sinister, <laughs> but um, that's what it's really yeah. all about. And rarely is heat part of it. Every once in a while you need to blanch something to tame an enzyme yeah. so that it doesn't you know, give you grief later. But um, most of it is a question of how it's going to be configured, how it's going to be cut. If you thinly slice or shred something, it's going to react very differently than if it's grated, than if it's chunks. And the time, I mean, the, you know, the period of time that, that it right, takes that, that it to takes transform. Right, that it takes to transform things. So um, probably when there was less food available, and also Japan has notably been a fuel-poor country. Mm -hmm. uh, again, probably leading to a lot of 
the room temperature, meaning that you would cook perhaps only a few times a week, and you're going to be cooking and seasoning and cutting and preserving so that it can be used. In other words, uh, only until the very recent modern era have people prepared from scratch three meals a day. Yeah. Um, that's, that's not been the norm. Mm. Um, so uh, there are opportunities. People see them as creative opportunities. And um, yes, there are Japanese who, who don't care to spend the time and energy thinking about it, but then they're also not eating well. <laughs> We're not talking to them anyway. <laughs> they're missing out. They, yes, you know, yeah. they're just it's, missing it's something delightful. wonderful. And eating with your eyes first, as I say, Jap- yes. the Japanese eat with their eyes. Well, eating with your eyes first, you know, the, it, there's this appreciation that is part of, I think, being sated in a, in a way yes. too and then you don't need as much food and now we're you know we're all back on this trend where less is more so and you know and, and eat eat th- sensibly eat healthfully and i think uh, so and the japanese are very um about also color it doesn't have to be strong contrast of color all the time it can be monotone and the drama of comparing textures but the same color um and very often food will be arranged with texture in mind the texture Mm. of the vessel and the texture of the food Mm. either the same or contrasting to make it stand out more Mm -hmm. Um, but color and and the Japanese talk about five colors red, yellow, green, black and white and notice that brown or gray (laughs) is not part of it that happens when when your daughter goes to summer camp and they plop it all together Well, (laughs) but there is brown and there is some gray food out there too but they think in terms of the the sort of primary range and then black and white as a palette and um, nutritionally it behooves you to include everything from every color at every meal but also um, Visual satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it all just makes so much sense. Uh, you know, the colors, especially, you get everything from, from most, well, most everything from most food groups. Yes. A range yes. of color. Yeah. And, uh, but, and the monotone, monotone works too, you know. It, it does. It's, it's interesting. It forces you to look more to textured. Is it a rough textured um, glaze and a very smooth food? I showed one slide um, of chunks of uh, tofu that had been barely simmered in soy sauce, so the color was a little pinky brown, pinky, yeah. and there was some wasabi on, on top of it, so the, just a little bit of green. And it was in a dish that's known as a shino ware, which is a sort of a pinky beige white um, mottled, I think maybe is the right description mm-hmm. for it, uh, dish. And the combination, the, the play of one against the other is um, the fun of that piece and it was very dramatic to present that yeah. and people did go <gasps> when they saw, they saw it, it because of, not because of bright colors but because of the contrast and forced them to look for different things right. yeah. Well you gave a challenge, presented a challenge to <laughs> those who attended the uh, yes. your presentation the other night and that was the next time they were serving a meal to or to themselves, making food for themselves, and or serving anything to someone? that they're. Uh, this doesn't just apply to Japanese food, folks. Soup and sandwich, peanut uh, butter and jelly. Peanut butter right? and jelly. Are you going to do it on white bread, on brown, on whole wheat bread? Are you going to use one of each? Uh, 
chunky or smooth peanut butter, orange marmalade, red raspberry jam. Are you going to make it a layer? Are you going to cut it on the diagonal? Are you going to cut it in squares? And what plate are you going to serve what it on? What plate right. are you going to serve it? Right. You've got all these opportunities right. knocking on your door. So you did challenge us to, to think about how right. we plated up our, right. our next meal. And I, I give that challenge to uh, my listeners. I, Please. Yeah. Yeah. The, think about these concepts of, of food and how it's presented and eat right. with your eyes before you before you put it in your mouth. Hmm, Sounds good. Interesting. Right. Elizabeth Ando, it's always a pleasure to hear from you. So Thank many you. wonderful cultural differences and and, <laughs> and and highlights that you bring us and thank, thank you. you for Thanks this for the opportunity. this talk on Moritsuke. Yes. I'm sure I Moritzke. Missed a syllable. Oh, Moritzke. 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 Whatever Moritzke. you want to call it. It's <laughs> okay. Arranging food fun. on your plate. Yes. Right, having fun. And thank you so much for listening. This thank has you. been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.